Amen. Thanks, Grant. Oh, to trust him more, right? We ought to be praying daily for that, that God would give us more grace to trust him more and more. Well, good morning again. We're in the middle of a, a difficult section in the book of Romans. Um, last Sunday was challenging. I got a number of really great questions that came from, from you guys during the week, which is always a blessing to me to be able to expound on things. So far in chapter 7, Paul has been attempting to show or attempting to explain how God's law, that law which was delivered through Moses and laid out in what we call the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, how the law ought to be viewed by those who are living after the coming of Christ and under the new covenant. How are we supposed to understand the law? What role does the law play in our lives? You might recall that Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church. It's a church that's filled with both Jewish and Gentile believers. So as he's talking about the law, there would have been a, a, a variety of opinions about the law in the congregation that's hearing it. Those with a Jewish background would have been raised to have the highest possible regard for the law. It was something that was deeply ingrained in them. And though they'd come to know Christ, it must have been something that was hard to sort of work out because it was so deeply ingrained in them. Those with a pagan background, they would have probably mostly learned about Moses and the law once they came into the church. And even then, it probably would have been something sort of foreign and mysterious to them. So it's a mixed bag that Paul is writing to. And he wants to make sure that he very carefully teaches on this very difficult subject. And I have found in my experience uh, with other Christians is this is a subject that is vexing for us even today. Christians don't seem to understand what is it about the law? What are we supposed to be doing with it? Are we under it? Are we not under it? Are we using it? Are we not? How exactly should we confront this thing we call the law? Last Sunday, we tried to lay a little bit of a foundation by going over a few basic facts. I'll put some on the screen. We talked about how the law is often broken up into three different categories. First of all, we noted the civil portions of the law, and we talked about how those were really given for ancient Israel. The, all the penalties and the, the you know, you stone a, a young man for disobedience to his father, things of that nature. It was about civil law, how we're going to govern ancient Israel. So those things have not survived. Those are not things that we're under today. That part of the law was given for ancient Israel. Secondly, we looked at the ceremonial portions. And we said, those things are fulfilled in Christ, especially the sacrificial system. We're not sacrificing animals anymore, right? Because those things are fulfilled in Christ. And so we're left with what scholars often call the moral law, the moral law, timeless principles and commands that come from God and reflect his heart and his character, many of which, by the way, are repeated in the New Testament and are summed up in what Paul calls the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It can be summed up simply like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law. We also talked about what scholars call the three uses of the law. This is important. The three uses of the law. Three ways that God's law remains both important and valuable in our world today, both for believers and for unbelievers. First, as a teacher, the law is a teacher or a tutor that leads the unbeliever to salvation. This is explicitly taught in Galatians 3.24. It can be said that the law is like a mirror. It's held up to a man so a man can see, or a woman, can see who he or she really is. That can sometimes be scary, can't it? It's a mirror that's held up to us so that it shows him 
his sin, and it shows him that he stands condemned before a holy God. And ultimately, it points him to the Savior. It points him to his greatest need to have his sins forgiven. And that, folks, is the highest and first use of the law, Galatians 3.24. The second use of the law is, is civil in nature. There is a civil function that goes with the law even today. In fact, we're going to get to this. When we get to, to Romans 13, we're going to see what Paul has to say about the role of government in our lives. And the, 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 the law can be said to be like a bridle on a horse. It, it restrains sin. The use of the law has nothing to do with salvation, this use of the law. Understand that. This is simply civil in function. It has nothing to do with salvation. It simply provides a basic framework for governing society. And then finally, we have the third use of the law, and this one is focused on obedience and sanctification. This is something that really is important for us as New Covenant believers. It can be said that the law is like a flashlight. It's used by believers to light a path towards walking in the commands of God, towards pleasing the Lord. Now, the important thing to understand as we talk about the third use of the law, we're not preaching that this use of the law is in any way uh, something that commends us to God or earns God's favor or, most of all, that it doesn't work our way to salvation. That's not what we're saying with the third use of the law. Instead, having been justified by faith, we now seek to obey God by the power of His Spirit out of, out of freedom, from the curse of the law, not in bondage to it. And so in this sense, we can join the psalmist when he says, how I love your law, O Lord. Have you ever, you've seen that text, you're like, well, hold on a second, I'm not under law. How can I, how, how can I love the, the law that God has given? Well, this is how, the third use of the law. It's like a flashlight. It shows you the way that you're to walk. This is how we're to call to stay in the path of his commands. The, we just read this morning, uh, from Psalm 119, it says, We take pleasure in these things, how we long for his precepts. With this third use of the law, out of freedom and by the Spirit, we can join in those Old Testament declarations about how good God's law is, about how good his commands and precepts are. And in fact, as I shared last Sunday, this is how our salvation is actually shown to be authentic. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? This is how our, our faith is shown. We bear fruit by keeping the commandments. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So there's a function of the law for us even today in the church, and that is as a flashlight showing us how we can please the Lord and observe his commands. Does that make sense? Good. That's a really important foundation. That's going to be important for today and also for the coming Sundays as we get into some of the meat of chapter 7. So grab your Bibles and let's turn there now. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. We're going to go 7 to 13 today. And that means next Sunday we'll dive into... The really controversial section that begins in verse 14. So this passage I was telling Grant and, and the, the worship team this morning is really a hard passage. It's, it's a bit tedious. Um, in fact, it's so hard. I, I was working on it this, this week, and I, I remembered that way back in my seminary days, I had done uh, an exegetical project on this particular passage. So I went and found my old notes from Romans 7, and... I opened it up, and I, I just thought I, I took a picture of this because I thought you'd like to see it. This was my syntactical diagram of the passage. So you can see um, that's how you diagram this particular passage. I know, you're all straining to see it. But just see all the arrows and all the... If you, by the way, if you want a copy of that, send me an email this week, and I'll, I'll shoot you a copy of it. It's a hard passage. 
It's a really hard passage, but there's much to learn here. So try to focus now rather than looking at that. In fact, I'm, I'm going to take it off the screen. I'm going back, okay, because I don't want you trying to read that. I'll send you a copy, I promise. Okay, so here, here's what you need to know as we come into this particular passage. Paul has been saying some really provocative things about the law so far in his letter. Some really provocative things. I'll give you a, a short rundown. In chapter 3, he said that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Okay, just picture yourself being Jewish, a Jewish believer, to hear that. Okay, the righteousness of God apart from the law. Then he said a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Then in chapter 4, Paul wrote that the promise to Abraham was not through the law, but by faith. So he picked on the, uh, a Jewish person's favorite character in Abraham and said it's by faith and not by the law. In chapter 5, he said the law came in so that sin would increase. Ouch. Chapter 6, he said to the church, you're not under law, but under grace. Now here in chapter 7, he said a couple things. He said, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Hmm. Then he said the law arouses sin in us, and it links up with sin to bring about our, our death. And finally, he said that we've been released from the law because the law really is an obstacle to life in the Spirit. Wow. So you can imagine there were some people in the Roman church in the first century, especially those with a Jewish background, who would have been concerned about this, concerned about what they would, they would probably call a tax upon the law, something very important to them. No doubt they would have been angry that, that Paul, this former Pharisee, this, this Hebrew of Hebrews, seems to be turning his back on his culture, seems to be turning his back on how he was raised and, and his education and all this stuff. And tops on their list of grievances would have been this question, how, Paul, can you possibly see the law as sinful? The way you're describing it, it sounds like that's what you're saying, that the law is sinful. I mean, you've already said that the law was given so that sin would get bigger, so it would increase. And then you said the law arouses sin in us, and it causes our death. What's going on here? Why these attacks, Paul? Why? Why do you no longer hold a high view of God's law? And so it makes perfect sense that Paul would sort of take a pause here in his letter and say, let me, let me just share a few things and straighten you out. And here's what he needs to explain. How can something so good, something that comes from the, the very hand of God, wreak such havoc on the human race? Important question. Now, as we read the text, keep two things in mind. First of all, Paul is writing, he's having sort of a flashback moment. You know how you're watching a show and they go, right? And, and you know you're going into doing, it doesn't really do that, but you, you know what I'm talking about. The, the screen goes wavy and you hear that sound. We're having a flashback. Okay? Don't laugh at me. So Paul's writing as a Christian, but he's looking back at his pre-conversion experience. He's looking back at a time when he was first coming under the conviction of sin, when he first understood the weight and the demands of the law, and he was coming under the conviction of sin before he came to know Christ. This is a flashback moment for him. Secondly, know this. Most scholars believe that Paul's writing not just about his own experience, but he's sort of channeling all of corporate Israel together. In other words, this is the experience of all of Israel under the Mosaic law. That make sense? He's writing in solidarity because any Jew who is born under the law would have been in the same predicament that he's describing in this particular passage. Okay, So it's a flashback, and he's writing in solidarity with all of Israel. So look at verse 7. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Okay, he anticipates the objection. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Absolutely not. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Let's pray and go home. Right? Wow. Okay, so here's where we're headed today. Really, three big points that you need to understand. Number one, we need to know what the law is not. We need to know what happens when the law comes to a man. And thirdly, what the law is. So we'll bookend it with what the law isn't and what it is. So let's look again at at verse 7. I'm going to click past that. What the law is not. Look again at verse 7. So knowing what he's previously written about the law and anticipating his audience's objection, Paul assures his audience. He starts off and he says, look, relax. Relax. The law is not sin. That's not what I'm saying. He, he gets that right out, right? In fact, it's absolutely not sin. May it never be, he says. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. And here's the kicker. The law is not man's problem. The law is not the source of man's problem. The problem, of course, is what? It's us. We're the problem. All the law does is expose who we really are by nature. We're sinners. That's what the law does. So the law is not sin. Rather, it reveals the sinfulness that is already present in us, the the depravity, the fallenness. That's what the law does. It reveals it, and then it defines sin for us. It defines it, bringing us to an understanding of two things, both God's holy standard and our depravity. That's what the law does. It reveals and it defines. And it says, look how God is holy and look how you are sinful. I mean, that's the beginning of the gospel, right? We need to understand that. That's the first use of the law, the highest use of the law. Here's an illustration, and I, this is not mine. I read this, and I thought it was really, really sharp. Here's an illustration of, of what Paul's saying. Three men are suffering from chest pains. And each one goes to a cardiologist to have his heart tested. And when the day comes for their consultation over the x-rays, each of these three guys has a completely different reaction. The first man goes in, he's shown his x-rays, and he says, looks fine to me. And the doctor's surprised because it isn't fine. And so he digs through his drawer, he pulls out this big textbook, and he opens it up to a picture and says, here's what a healthy heart is supposed to look like. Right? But instead of recognizing the difference between the condition of his heart versus what the picture looks like, the guy just says, look, I don't have time for your pictures. And he storms out. He just, he just kind of, I just figure I'm okay. Some of you guys do that, by the way. You don't go to the doctor, right? I, I'll be fine. I know, me too. I know. But he storms out. He says, I don't have time for this. 
The second man is even more foolish. He looks at his x-rays. Then he looks at the same picture of a healthy heart. And he says, how dare you say that my heart is wrong? That picture is inferior, not my heart. The standard is wrong. My heart's fine. And he storms out too. The third man is the wise man. He looks at the x-rays. He looks at the picture in the textbook. And he says this, how can I get my heart to be healthy like that one? The third man is the only one, the only patient that the doctor can actually help, right? See, the law uncovers sin and shows us how serious our condition is. That's what the law does. It uncovers our sin. It reveals it, defines it, and says, hey, you got a heart problem. Your condition is really, really serious. But catch this. This is important. The law can diagnose the sin, but it can't fix the problem. Right? That's where grace comes in. It cannot fix the problem. Just as you can't use an x-ray to cure heart disease. Try that sometime. It won't work. An x-ray isn't designed to fix your health problem, and neither is the law designed to remedy your problem for sin. Now, look at the example Paul uses to make his point. He uses the example of coveting. Isn't that interesting? He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, He picks coveting for a reason, right? God always has a purpose in these things. It's not by random choice. It's not by accident. Paul has an important point to make here. What is unique about coveting amongst the Ten Commandments? It's really set apart from the other nine. Primarily because it's hidden. It's hidden. It's the most hidden of all the sins on the Ten Commandments. And and, and though we know that all sin starts in the heart... Things like murder and stealing and adultery, those things can easily be observed from the outside, can't they? But not so coveting. Coveting is something that we can regularly engage in and nobody will ever know it. This is why Paul uses this particular one. We can covet uh, a promotion that our coworker gets. We can covet a neighbor's new car. We can covet that man's wife or that wife's husband. We can covet the lifestyle of our friends on social media. Yeah, that never happens. We can even covet that seemingly perfect family in our church. Coveting is a particularly deadly sin because it's so subtle and because it's so undetectable from the outside. You know what coveting is at the core? It's a dissatisfaction with God. It's a dissatisfaction and a discontentment with what he's given us. That's what it is. So we allow our minds to focus on what we don't have. And that leads to all kinds of other sins. In fact, it's been said of coveting that it's the gateway to all the other sins. Think about that for a second. You start getting discontent. You start looking at all the stuff you don't have and what other people have. And pretty soon, you're down a whole maze of other sins. From anxiety to resentment to anger to harsh words to idolatry. And even in extreme cases, to stealing, adultery, and even murder because of coveting. And so with coveting, the very heart of the law is open to us. This is why Paul chooses it. We see that God's law isn't just concerned with behavior. Ooh, this is a tough one, right? We see that God's law isn't just concerned with actions on the outside, that God is concerned about our thoughts, about our feelings, about our desires, about our inclinations. Those things matter to God. They matter a great deal. And that's why it's the perfect example for Paul to use here. See, it's easy to say, I've never murdered anybody. It's not so easy to say, I've never coveted. Because we all do. So Paul admits, I wouldn't have known about this very subtle sin 
that was within me unless the law had come and revealed the depth of it to me. Now I see the x-ray, Paul is saying, and I want to see what my heart should look like. So that's the first thing. The law is not sin. Here's the second thing we need to talk about. What happens, what happens when the law comes to us, the devastating effects that come with the law? Look at verse 8. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Hmm. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. You see the contrast there? The language here is hard, isn't it? So first we learned in verse 7 that the law reveals and defines sin for us. Here in verse 8, we learned that sin takes the law and stirs up more sin. Let me say that again. Sin takes the law and it stirs up more sin in our hearts. Some of you guys, I know you've read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic book. And there's a section in there where, where Bunyan describes the main character, whose name, of course, is Christian. And he comes into this room. It's a really dry and dusty room. And there's this thick, moldy layer of dust all over the room. And the dust represents sin. And then into the room comes a man with a broom. And the man with the broom represents the law. And what does he do? He begins to sweep the dust. And what happens? What happens when you sweep a room of dust? It stirs up. And it creates this choking cloud all throughout the room. It's a perfect illustration of what Paul's saying here. Sin takes the commandment and it stirs up a choking cloud of sin in our lives. And we know this, we know this principle will be true, right? Knowledge of the law always brings with it a desire to break that law. Every parent knows that. Amen, parents? Every parent knows that. You tell your child, don't touch that, and he or she will try. I mean, it's, just, it's just a given. We all know that that's true. The law says don't covet. Paul says that created in me a greater desire to covet. And the more the law said don't covet, the more I plotted to covet. This is our problem. The law irritates man by its requirements. And it arouses our rebellious heart. But we always have to understand the law is not the originator of sin. It simply provides the conditions for illicit desires to operate. The language here is really interesting. Paul pictures sin as springing into action through the law. Not just, I don't like the, the NASB that says taking opportunity through the commandment. It's more like seizing the opportunity. It's jumping on it. It's springing to action. And, and so sin sees an opportunity through God's holy law and it springs into action and it produces in us a spirit of coveting. Paul treats sin like a power here. He, he personalizes it, this indwelling principle of sin. He says, look, sin, it, this sin, it is, it is looking for opportunity to jump. It is searching for those opportunities to take God's law and use it against us. And when it sees that opportunity, it springs into action, and it seizes on the depravity of man within us, and it produces all kinds of more sin. This is a tough passage. This is a depressing passage, isn't it? This is really rough. There's a war going on inside the soul of man. That, the language here is describing a war. In fact, that word for opportunity in the Greek can literally be understood as a point of departure or a base of operations in a military context. Sin uses the law as its operating base to accomplish its evil purposes. 
There's a war going on. Sin is looking, it's crouching at the door, and it's looking for an opportunity to take God's law, to jump at that chance, and to stir up the depravity within us. Again, we're talking about Paul's past here, right? We're not talking about Paul as a new covenant believer. We're talking about what he was dealing with in the past as a Jew living under the law and finally coming under conviction of sin. Sin was ready to pounce on him and to produce more and more sin in him. Now look at the two statements that Paul makes at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. These two bookend statements, I have to tell you, these two statements have vexed uh, theologians for centuries. They're very strange. He says, apart from the law... Sin is dead. Okay? And then he says, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, before the law came and revealed the depth of his sin to him, Paul says two things. Number one, sin was dead and he was alive. How can that be? Very, very strange. Certainly he's not claiming that sin was non-existent, right? We know that to be true. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we see something like that, and we know that if, if it says that on its bald face, but it's contradicted elsewhere, we've got to figure out what exactly was Paul trying to say because Scripture never, never contradicts itself, right? So he's not claiming that sin was non-existent. Nor is he saying that somehow he was spiritually alive apart from Christ. That wouldn't make any sense. So here's the best way we understand this. Sin was less active and therefore less powerful prior to the delivery of the Mosaic Law. Less active and less powerful. And so without the law, sinful desires like coveting, subtle things like that, would have been less apparent to a man like Paul before the law came. One scholar wrote this, dead sin, and that's what he says here, dead sin is the absence of painful conviction. Dead sin is the absence of painful conviction. Doesn't mean sin isn't there. It's just that when it's dead to you, it means that you're not under its conviction yet. There's no painful conviction in your life. So it's easy to think that you're spiritually alive and okay before the law comes to you with all of its weight and authority. And that's what Paul was dealing with at this point. Paul says he was once alive apart from the law. What does that mean? He's talking about a complacent, self-righteous life. By the way, this was commonplace in first century Judaism, wasn't it? A complacent, self-righteous life. It's typical of somebody who is just unaware of their sin because conviction hasn't come yet. And in fact, this, to me, explains the rich young ruler. You guys know the story of the rich young ruler? What, is, what, is Jesus, what does he say to Jesus? He says, look, I want to I attain to eternal life. What do I do? What does Jesus say? Keep the law. And then Jesus gives him a whole bunch of them. And what does he say so arrogantly? What does he say? I've kept all of them. He believes he's alive. He's complacent. He is self-righteous. He believes he's alive. Jesus knows better, doesn't he? So Jesus challenges him and says, what? Sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor. No, thanks. That guy, was, that guy arrogantly thought he was alive. That's the type of condition that Paul is describing here. Complacent and self-righteous. But when the law does come, And when conviction does come, it comes with power and authority. And as a result of that, sin is stirred up and made more active in us. I'll give you another example of this. Think about Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. What law did God lay down about eating in the garden? What was the law? Eat of any tree that you see except that one. All kinds of freedom for Adam and Eve, right? Look at all the beautiful trees and all the fruit and all that. Just not that one. All kinds of freedom, correct? 
But once the prohibition was laid down, don't eat of that one, Satan had a base of operations to work from. Think about that. He had an opportunity through the law to tempt Adam and Eve into sin. What was the result? Eve saw the fruit and she what? She desired it. She desired it. It was the coming of the command that enabled sin to flare up in Eve and she ate. And we all know the end of that story, right? So this is what Paul's describing here, this idea of coming of the law with authority and power, how it serves as a base of operations for sin to grab hold of it and to stir up sin in us in our pre-conversion state. That's where the devastating part begins. Look at the end of verse 9. Paul writes, when the commandment came, now sin became alive. Remember he said before sin was dead, but with the commandment sin becomes alive. He says before I was alive, now he says now I died. So everything got turned upside down when the commandment came. Sin was dead, I was alive, commandment comes, the opposite is true. Sin comes alive and I die. The fact is, sin was always there. It was lying dormant. He wasn't aware of it like he should have been. He wasn't under its conviction yet. He should have been, but he wasn't. It was too subtle. He didn't even understand coveting yet. It was there, though. He was sinning. He was coveting. Even though he wasn't aware of it, he was still coveting, wasn't he? It was lying dormant there. But when the law came and God showed him that he was a lawbreaker, everything changed for Paul. Sin sprang to life, and Paul came to this really dreaded realization, which is also a great joy and blessing, right? Oh, my goodness, I'm not righteous. Oh, my goodness, I'm a lawbreaker. Oh, my goodness, the demands of the law are beyond what I can fulfill. Oh, my goodness, I'm eternally lost. I'm dead in my sins. You see how this works? It's the first use of the law. Oh, my goodness. Paul realized he was under the sentence of death. This is the necessary part of the gospel, isn't it? This is where it has to start. We can't be living complacent, self-righteously, thinking we're okay. The law comes and it confronts us. Sin wants to grab it and create more sin in us. But those whom God has chosen, that law is going to come and confront us and we're going to say, I'm under the sentence of death. I died that day. Then we learn something else about the law in verse 10. Look at it. This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Oh, okay, so now Paul's beginning to vindicate the law. He says, look, the original design of the law was not to kill you. It was to bring life. Now, could the law have brought eternal life to Paul? In theory, yes, if he had kept the the law completely like Jesus did. By the way, aren't you glad that Jesus did that? He earned it, right? He earned eternal life, and then he imputes that to us. That's good news. But for Paul and the rest of the humanity, for you and I, verse 11 then comes down like a hammer. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So again, here we go. That looks a little bit repetitive. The objector is going to say, well, there you go again, Paul. It sounds like you're saying that the law itself is a murderer that the law is evil, that the law is sin. But again, it's not the law that kills. Look at the language. The killer is sin. Sin uses the law as its chosen weapon, but the law is not the murderer. Our sin is. You see it? Here's another good way to think about this. Picture the law like a, like a surgeon's scalpel. You know how scary a scalpel is? It's very scary looking, but it's designed to bring health, isn't it? 
Not death. It's designed for health. But sin takes the scalpel of God's commandments and it slashes our throat and kills us. It wasn't intended to do that, but sin takes a hold of it and it kills us. The commandment was meant to bring life, but it brought death for me, Paul says. Why? Because sin took the scalpel out of the surgeon's hand and slashed us to death. That's what Paul's saying here. How does sin do that? This is so important, you guys. Pay close attention. If I've lost you, wake up. Notice Paul's word. It deceived us. That's how it killed us. That's how the law, how sin takes the law and kills us through deception. Sin is fundamentally a liar. Sin kills you by making promises it will never keep. If you're here this morning and, and you, don't, you, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you think you're okay with God apart from Christ, you're being deceived. You're being lied to. Sin is promising you something you will never be able to deliver upon, and you are believing it. I hope you'll trust me with that. It's saying one of two things to you. Either it's saying, look, you can't keep God's commands. They're too lofty. You'll never do it. So just go out and live however you want because it doesn't matter anyway. Or, or sin is saying to you, you're fine. You're better than most people. You're a good person. But either one of those ways, those are lies. Those are massive lies. And either one of them are suicide in terms of your spiritual life and your eternal life. That's how Sin takes the law and destroys us and kills us. It deceives you. It's promising you something right now. It will not deliver. Its end is death. Now, one last truth we have to explore. If the law isn't sin, what exactly is it? Look at verse 12. Now, verse 12 seems like a strange conclusion after all we've read so far, doesn't it? So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Finally, Paul's really coming out and explicitly vindicating the law here, right? He says the law is holy. In fact, it is pure, it is righteous and just, and it is good, meaning it's, it's, it's designed to be benevolent to you and I. It's holy and righteous and good. Why? Because God is holy and righteous and good, right? The law, as given, even through Moses, reflects the heart and character of the author and the designer, and the law, as originally designed, was unto life, not unto death. But unfortunately, sin has misused it. Again, sin is the culprit. We don't blame the law just as you would never blame an x-ray when it shows the presence of cancer. Could you imagine? You go in there, they show you the x-ray, there's a spot there, and you go, oh, that darn x-ray. That would be, that would be foolish, right? We don't say that. We don't say that. Our cancer is sin, not the law. The law is simply the tool, the diagnostic tool, which uncovers the identity of the true killer. Paul says this very thing in the last verse. Look at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Absolutely not. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, the law, so that through the commandment, sin would be, this is a funny statement, sin would become utterly sinful. Is there a purpose in all this? I step back and I read all this and I'm like, Lord, I got to preach through this? This is heavy. This is hard. Is there a purpose in all this? Does God have a purpose in ordaining that sin would take hold of the law and bring death to mankind? Absolutely. God has a purpose in everything, doesn't he? 
Again, this is the first use of the law. The true character of sin is being revealed here so that we can see it in all of its ugliness. Sin is always going to try to clothe itself and make itself look attractive. But here we see its true colors. It's nothing but sin. It's utterly sinful, Paul says. Do you believe that? Do you believe that sin is that ugly? Because that's what Paul wants to drive home here today. So what can I leave, with, leave you with today? First of all, I can leave you with a summary of this difficult passage. Here's just uh, four bullet points that help us understand sort of the logic of what Paul's saying. First of all, start with the fact that the law is holy and good. Because God is holy and good, right? We affirm that. Secondly, what does the law do? What is the function? It reveals, defines, and stirs up the problem in us for his glory, for his purposes. We affirm that that second bullet point is good, right? That it's stirring these things up, that it's revealing and defining. Why? Because we need to know what our problem is if we're going to remedy the problem. And the third bullet point is important. Number three, the problems are sin. That's what needs to get remedied, right? And then fourth, sin seizes upon the law. We should know, always know the things that hurt us. We should know what their strategy is, right? The strategy is to deceive you. And by deceiving you, to kill you. And by killing, Paul's not just talking about physical life, is he? He's talking about eternal death. So that's really the, the outline here. Now, a couple other applications. Here's a second application for you. And this is going to be a hard one. Understand your sin. Know your sin. You're like, no thanks, Jeff. Not what I came for this Sunday. I'm telling you, search out your sin so that you can know its full extent. Paul's just finished telling us how deceitful it can be, so don't let it deceive you. Don't let it lay dormant down there without you knowing what it is. Find out the truth. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal more about your sin. You're like, man, why would I sign up for that? Right? That's like you know, in baseball, we, leaning into a fastball. You know, like I'm going to lean across the plate and get hit. Why do I want to do that? It's going to be painful, right? Is there, is, there a, is there something good in that, though? Is an exploratory surgery looking for a disease good? Is a biopsy good when you think that there's a problem inside you? Absolutely. It's painful, but there's a purpose. Figure out what's really going on inside you. Here's why I can say that. It's because God is a great physician and he can be fully trusted. That's, what you, that's where you've got to start. You can trust him in that process. He is always working in us. He'll never give us more than we can handle. And he's always working in us for our benefit and his glory. So if you say, Lord, reveal to me more about my sin, will he do it with great care? Absolutely. You can trust him when you seek the truth about yourself. It's good. Here's a third and last application. And this is an obvious one. It really comes straight from the text, the first six verses in chapter 7. If you're a Christian, if you're here this morning, you've trusted in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, always remember that you have died to the condemnation of the law. You've died to it. So this is heavy stuff. But again, we're talking about Paul's pre-conversion flashback. We can sit here this morning and rejoice because we've died to the condemnation of the law. Man, that is good news. How did that happen? Through the body of Christ, Paul says. 
Now we've been released from the law. We've been freed. The power of sin that was once held over you, that was so powerful and authoritative in your life, that power has been broken by Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So never forget that now you've been joined to another. Once you were joined to to the law and to sin and to death, now you've been joined to Jesus Christ. You're united with him in his death on the cross. You've been buried with him in his baptism. And you have been raised to new life in his resurrection. We're united to him. And so Paul has been saying, look, he, he gives you the ugly picture here so that you can understand how important it is to understand your sin and the law and how it all works. But he says, but rejoice because you're found in Christ. Now, he says, what? Now what? Go, walk, serve, bear fruit in the newness of the Spirit. Amen? Bow your heads, would you?